Well, hello everybody uh, watching wherever you're watching, your living room, your kitchen. Uh, I was going to say whilst you're driving, hopefully not watching whilst you're driving. Uh, this is great to be able to speak to you and to be able to uh, not just uh, cancel everything, but to be able to have a way that we can connect together uh, in this way. Well done for finding it, whether you're watching on Facebook or Instagram or the website or the app or you found it on Sky Sports or whatever you've done, uh, well done. Uh, I know this is a little bit unusual, it's a little bit unusual for you probably watching me on your uh, laptop or your phone or your telly if you've managed to work out some sort of system there. Uh, it's strange for you, it's strange for me, I promise you, I'm in my daughter's bedroom preaching to a camera on my own. It's an unusual setup uh, and I'm sure you'll agree and it's not ideal and there's a reason why when coronavirus has passed, which uh, we know it will because all things pass, don't they, except Jesus and his kingdom and his love and his church uh, and, and, and hope and joy and peace and all of those things will never fade. But coronavirus at some point will go and there's a reason why we won't be doing this every week for the rest of the existence of Church Central. Uh, this is sub preferable it's not ideal it's not what we'd want uh, and yet isn't it amazing that in all the weirdness of the last few weeks there is now a way that we can be together at least in some sense and we can hear God's word together and we can listen to him all the voices that we've been listening to all of the noise I don't know how your head is I have literally had headaches from just thinking about everything and hearing everything and today we get to come and hear from Jesus together and uh, the way it's going to work is we're going to be in a, a brand new series from now through till September whether that's through video or in the flesh we were going to be in this series anyway it's just so happened that today we would have been starting this series at Church Central West and Church Central North uh, and instead we're doing it this way it would have been coming to Church Central South in a few weeks time but uh, you guys get to have it a little bit early because of what's going on uh, and I guess as we get rolling I want to make uh, a, an incredibly uncharacteristically bold claim about the teaching and the preaching that is coming up in this series I'm an insecure person many of you would know me and would know that I am quite insecure and so this claim does not come lightly but I'm going to say this to you loud and clear that this series is going to be a time where as Church Central Churches we sit under the finest teaching and preaching that there has ever been in the history of human civilization. I'm telling you this teaching that we're going to be uh, being addressed by in this series is going to be without rival. It is teaching, I promise you this, capable of inspiring revolutions, transforming nations. It's teaching that eclipses the oratory skill of the great communicators of history. Teaching that is so enduringly relevant that even millennia after it's given, it will still speak to the issues at play in every human culture and every human heart. Now in case you think that uh, cabin fever has kicked in and my flu-like symptoms that are passing, thank you for asking, uh, have, have given me some sort of strange uh, fever that's caused megalomania, uh, I'm not referring here to the skills or the power or the 
prowess or the profundity or the relevance or the depth or the charisma, though nice to see you, uh, inspiration or precision or authority of the Church Central preaching team. Uh, you can make your own minds up about that. But I am very much referencing the skills, power, profundity, relevance, depth, charisma, inspiration, precision and authority of the teaching and preaching of Jesus of Nazareth. Because from now through till September, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And as you may or may not know, the Sermon on the Mount is a collection of teachings from the mouth of Jesus gathered together into the book of Matthew. And in the 2000 years since Jesus taught this stuff, uh, it's gone on to be admired right across the world, right through time, and by some of the most influential leaders and thinkers around the world. Just to give you three, Martin Luther King Jr. repeatedly referenced the Sermon on the Mount in his fight against racial injustice in the United States. And uh, interestingly, years later, uh, Barack Obama, uh, as he did his campaign for the presidency and uh, hope and all of this, he used language from this Sermon on the Mount. Slightly different angle, Richard Dawkins, a name some of you would know, an atheist so hostile to Christianity and religion in general, that described it as a virus that should be purged from humanity, concedes in the God delusion his admiration for the Sermon on the Mount, saying it's way ahead of its time, represents some of the greatest ethical teaching in history. Last one, Mahatma Gandhi, a Hindu, not a Christian, a Hindu, spoke of the experience he had as he opened the book of Matthew and saw the words of the Sermon on the Mount and read them. He said that the words went straight to his heart and he said this, and here's a challenge for you in this time particularly. He said that if the church actually lived by the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, that Gandhi would not have hesitated to say, oh yes, I am a Christian. See, in three chapters, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, uh, Jesus brings to his disciples, his students, his apprentices uh, and to the church down the ages and to us in Birmingham or wherever you are today. He brings in the Sermon on the Mount essentially his manifesto for a whole new way to be human. It's his uh, vision for the good life, his vision of a life well lived. It's uh, a vision of life in right relationship with God and with others and even with ourselves. And it is absolutely beautiful. Let me just encourage you for 20 seconds. When you have some time in the coming weeks, and for some of you, that's going to be like all the time because of what's going on. And for some of you, it's going to feel like you, you're just frantic with work and different things that are going on for you. We're all in different contexts right now. But when you get a moment, you need to read the Sermon on the Mount. You need to, as much as it's important to hear Boris Johnson's press conference at 4.45 to 5.15 or whatever it is every day, you, you need to see the words of Jesus in this sermon. They're absolutely beautiful. It's going to be an amazing uh, few months walking through it together uh, as churches. But I need to just give you a warning as well. Uh, even with all of the, the beauty and the, the power and the relevance and the majesty contained within these magnetic words of Jesus of Nazareth, it is not 
automatic, just because we're doing a series and we're opening them up, that these words will bear fruit in your life. It is not automatic that you will see the good of the Sermon on the Mount come to reality in you and those around you. That's just not going to happen. There's another ingredient that is needed. As we uh, are addressed by Jesus of Nazareth in this sermon, we need to do something. We need to listen. We need to sit under Jesus' words and truly listen. So I ask you at the outset of this uh, slightly unusual experience and the outset of this talk and at the outset of our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, I ask you, are you listening? Are you listening? You say, Rich, I've uh, specifically followed the instructions that were sent out. I've found the talk. I'm listening. Can we get on with it, please? Uh, Which would be fair enough. Um, But you see, there is actually something more complex about the question, are you listening? We know from uh, lots of the conversations that Jesus has that there's a way that you can be listening and yet not listening at all. Jesus says this really strange phrase quite a lot, doesn't he? He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, which feels like the most redundant sort of preacher line ever. Like, if you can hear me, hear me. It's like, what are you talking about? And you want to say to Jesus, probably, and be sensitive about this, but probably a, a relatively high proportion of the people who he was speaking to had ears. And so you're thinking, what are you talking about, Jesus? But it's very clear that he's saying there's a way you can be hearing but not hearing. There's a way you can interact with the words of Jesus, which is that you're listening to them, but you're not listening to them. There's a way that we can be exposed to the Sermon on the Mount repeatedly over and over again, endlessly, and yet it have absolutely no impact on us whatsoever. And there's a way that even snippets of this amazing teaching from Jesus can bear astonishing fruit in our lives. Are you listening? Are you really listening? And what I want to do today is just look at four verses from the Sermon on the Mount. The the first two verses and the last two verses, uh, kind of the trailer and then the credits of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to use them to provoke us towards true listening. I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, and then we'll look at the, the, the final couple of verses, Matthew 7, verses 28 to 29. Here's the, uh, the trailer, the first two. It says, One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. And then in Matthew 7, 28 to 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Are you listening? I want to break that question down for you and ask two other questions. Why should I listen to Jesus? That's question one. And then secondly, how do I listen to Jesus? Why listen to Jesus and how 
Do I listen to Jesus? Let's start then. Why should we, with all the other noise, why should we listen to Jesus? Firstly, I think Matthew is trying to make you see that you should listen to Jesus because he is a rabbi. Uh, I'm going to be real with you. If I asked you to write down, or if you'd asked me to write down one word, three words, five words, ten words, potentially a hundred words to describe who Jesus is, I imagine very few of us would have instinctively written down rabbi. We'd have said he's our king, which is true, and we want to lean into that at the moment. Uh, He's our saviour, he's our lord, he's our god, he's our brother, he's our saviour, he's our rescuer. I think I said saviour twice, but it's really important that he's our saviour. But none of us would have said he's our rabbi. But Matthew at the outset is absolutely deliberate in showing us this. He's showing us Jesus as a teacher, someone of great wisdom, of knowledge, who can enlighten us about God's word and God's ways. That's what a rabbi is. And we see this in the first couple of verses. Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. Now you say it doesn't say that he's a rabbi in those verses, Rich, but if you were a first century Jewish reader of the Sermon on the Mount or a Jewish hearer, you would absolutely understand that this is rabbi imagery. Because when it says he sat down, that's not just some pointless detail, uh, like you are probably sitting down now and I at some point soon will need to have a sit down. Uh, It's not evidence that Jesus is tired, though depending on the size Uh, and gradient of the mount he probably was. Rather, this sitting was a common, very common uh, practice among Jewish rabbis, that they would sit down to teach and the disciples, students, apprentices would see them sit down and they would know, ah, the teacher wants to teach us something and they would gather around to listen. It's probably a little bit like in our kind of church context when you see me at the front uh, getting the music stand ready and putting the mic on and going, is this thing on? And looking at the sound desk and saying, hey, are we good? And you in the room at that moment, you, you take the cue, you know, okay, it's teaching time. We've got to draw our small talk to a close and we've got to look at the front for a bit. And that's what Jesus is effectively doing when he sits down. He sits down and then the disciples assume the posture of students and they say effectively, teach me teach me. And Matthew, I think, is suggesting that we should do the same. As the students of Jesus, his apprentices, his disciples, our posture should be the same as well. Coming to the feet of Rabbi Jesus and saying, teach me. Teach me about God. Teach me about life. Teach me about your kingdom. Teach me about your ways. Teach me about me, even. He's coming to him and saying, I'm not the teacher. I'm not coming to address you, Jesus, with my ideas. I'm coming to be addressed, Jesus, by you and your ideas. I'm a student. I'm listening to the rabbi. So we should listen to him, Matthew says, because he's a rabbi. And secondly, we should listen to Jesus because he is the new Moses. Uh, Matthew's writing is a Jewish man. I think I've already referred to that. 
And for Jews, Moses is the guy, okay? He is the man. He's the guy who led them uh, out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus and saved them. He's the one who uh, is credited with writing the, the, the beautiful words of the Torah. He's the one who, it said, spoke to God like they were close friends. Uh, he's just this guy who the Jewish people had built their whole identity on. They'd built their whole nation on the practice of listening to the words of Moses. Matthew is deliberately now presenting to us that when Jesus turns up, a new Moses has turned up. It's that big a deal. You see, there's another moment, uh, think about it, you probably know the story, when someone goes up a mountain and then brings God's word to the people, his vision of the good life. And it's Moses. He goes up Mount Sinai and comes down with the words from God, the Ten Commandments, uh, this vision of what life should look like, and he brings them to the people. Now Jesus is on a mountain doing exactly the same thing, delivering words of God's vision of the good life. Jesus is like Moses. Now that might feel a little bit tenuous uh, and like you're not quite convinced that that's there, Uh, But let me just show you just a a few of the ways that Matthew has already, in the beginning of his gospel, been making this seriously clear for Jewish readers. Jesus, you need to see that Jesus is like Moses. Think about it. Moses is most well known for bringing about the salvation of God's people from slavery, right, in the Exodus. But in Matthew 1, it is declared over Jesus that he will save God's people, save them from their sins. Moses, we pick up his story as a helpless baby when he's in huge danger as a paranoid, harsh ruler over God's people. Pharaoh has decreed to kill all the infant males. And in Matthew 2, Jesus, we find a helpless baby who's in huge danger as a paranoid, harsh ruler over God's people, this time called Herod, has decreed to kill all the infant males. Anyone reading that who's from a Jewish background would instantly see the parallels. Jesus, well, he's like Moses. Moses, in that situation, with that threat from Pharaoh, is saved, if you remember, uh, as a baby, in huge part because of the courage and faithfulness of a young woman called Miriam. Jesus, in his danger as a baby, is saved in huge part because of the courage and faithfulness of a young woman called Mary, which isn't the same, I know. Uh, uh, It's close, and it would be nice if they had the same name. And then you realise that Mary is actually short in Aramaic for Mariam or Mariam, which is the Aramaic version of the name Miriam. Literally put, Jesus is saved from the harsh ruler looking to kill the infants by the courage and faithfulness of a Miriam. Jesus is like Moses. Moses is eventually called by God to come out of Egypt and bring God's people out of Egypt. And in Matthew 2, Jesus, uh, as a refugee child, goes down into Egypt fleeing and then returns at some point months later. And at that point, Matthew quotes an Old Testament verse saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus, like Moses, was brought out of Egypt by God. Jesus is a new Moses. Moses enters and comes out of, comes through the waters of the Red Sea. 
Jesus in Matthew 3 enters and comes out of is brought through the waters of baptism in the river Jordan. Moses spends 40 years then wandering around uh, the wilderness. Jesus, straight after his coming through the water moment, is sent for 40 days into the wilderness as well. So when Jesus goes up a mountain ready to bring God's word, any Jewish person reading that would see, wow, Jesus is being presented as a new Moses. If we were to listen to Moses, maybe we need to listen to him. So you should listen to Jesus because he's a rabbi. You should listen to Jesus because he's the new Moses. And you should listen to Jesus because he has authority. Chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us that Jesus kind of finishes off. And it's not like people have nodded off like you perhaps have at the moment. Wake up, do the clapping thing and are thinking what's on the telly today. Rather, it says they were utterly gobsmacked and amazed for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. They're saying there's something unique, something special, something different about him when he speaks. It says he has an authority, a real authority, that other rabbis of the time didn't have. And this isn't, I think, and I'm relieved to say, as someone who speaks occasionally, a comment on his strength of voice or his way with words. I think all of the teachers of the religious law back then would have had those. But rather, it's about in whose name Jesus speaks. See, a bog-standard rabbi of the time would speak mostly on the authority of the great traditions that had gone before. Uh, They'd have referenced a great teacher of old. They'd have said, oh, Rabbi Smith used to say this and uh, therefore we should apply it to our lives. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says things, radical things in this sermon, like, uh, yes, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He stands and speaks on issues of human life and morality in his own authority. He doesn't say uh, Rabbi Smith from up the road. He doesn't even say God says this to you. Something about Jesus allows him to just stand and say, I say to you, I say to you. It's almost like Jesus has the right to tell us how life works, which is funny because he absolutely does have the authority to tell us how life works. You see, authority is from the same root word as author. Authority is linked to authorship. And just as someone who authored a novel has the authority and the the power to command where the characters go and, and what the characters do in the world that they create. So Rabbi Jesus, not just a rabbi, as the author of this world and the author of our lives, speaks with true and ultimate authority. This sermon series is not just listening in to some talks. This sermon series, the Sermon on the Mount, is the author addressing us, his characters, addressing you. I'm asking you again, are you listening? Are you listening to Jesus? So let's dive in then with the second question. How then do we listen to Jesus? Now here I could give you loads of technique, Uh, breathe in deep when you're nodding off, that's uh, one I often use, Uh, don't stay up too late the night before because then you'll nod off and things like that, Uh, it's not really a problem for me, I 
my raving days are behind me, I think. Uh, but it's not so much about technique. It's not so much about top tips, though some of those things can be important. I think it's more about posture, heart posture, attitude. How do we come to Jesus when he speaks to us? Do we come in a, in a receptive, a humble spirit, or do we come with our own ideas? Do we come ready to disagree? How do we come to Jesus of Nazareth? And just to help us with this, I want to flag up before we're done three contrasts of posture that we just need to watch out for as disciples. We just need to be aware of uh, as we listen to him generally and as we go through the Sermon on the Mount as well. The first one to just watch out for is the, the contrast between listening for information and listening for formation. See, there are loads of fascinating things in the Sermon on the Mount, loads of information, loads of stuff that you could recite on your uh, church life group conference call or Skype call or whatever it is uh, later on uh, in the coming weeks. And you could sound so informed. You could sound so informed. And that's not bad. But if you're informed and it makes no difference in your life, you haven't truly heard Jesus. You haven't truly listened. See, truth is meant to make a difference in us. It says in the scriptures, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not you'll know the truth and be really impressive with how you can recite it, but live exactly the same. No, truth is meant to set us free. It's meant to transform us. It's meant to form us. And we do not primarily come to this sermon to get a load of info. Like perhaps we come to the press conference of Boris and his advisors for watching those. You know, we come to those ready to hear some facts and some what's what's the next thing. And that's not how we listen to Jesus. We come to Jesus saying, change me, change me, Jesus. You are the potter. I am the clay. Would you mould me? Would you form me? The second contrast I want to flag up is listening to Jesus and then being hardened or listening to Jesus and then being humbled. See, at times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say things that in our culture, in kind of the, the, the Western culture that Church Central sits within, we, we tend to absolutely celebrate and love regardless of our religious allegiance. Uh, things like, uh, blessed are the peacemakers. Like, no one's going to persecute you for believing that, right? And at those moments when Jesus says, really great things that we've all agreed with most of our life, it's no challenge to nod along and agree. The challenge comes when some of the sayings of Jesus rub us up the wrong way. And because every culture is fallen and every culture has blind spots and all of us as individuals are, are biased and have naiveties and let's face it, sin against God, when the author addresses us, of course, there are going to be things that rub us up the wrong way because we don't see the whole picture. We aren't perfect at all. And so when he says things, sometimes it's going to get my heckles up and sometimes it's going to go, well, that doesn't fit with my political opinion. And sometimes it's going to say that doesn't fit with my ethical beliefs. Jesus speaks things and we can get defensive. And there, there is a challenge. Will we let the words of Jesus harden us or humble us? And let me just say, if we give in to the temptation to recoil into a pick and choose discipleship where we take 
our favourite bits of the Sermon on the Mount and reject the ones that challenge how we live, that is ignoring the cross-shaped call of the King and we're not truly being students of Rabbi Jesus. Now at those moments, which will come for all of us, we recognise that we are not the rabbi's teaching and correcting him, he is the rabbi teaching and correcting us. We are his students, his apprentices. We don't teach him how he should think. He gets to teach us. We recognise that we are not the author rewriting him, he is the author rewriting us. This series, don't harden yourself, but humble yourself. And the last challenge is this. Do we listen to be entertained in church, or do we listen to be obedient in the world? See, there's a way of listening to this series uh, and all uh, teaching in church, whatever church background, wherever you've come from, there's a way that I think is more common than we'd want to admit of listening to teaching and saying, oh, I just really loved the teaching or, oh, it was a bit hard work. Rich had quite a lot of points and he was very obviously awkward about the experience of preaching from his daughter's bedroom into a camera and it wasn't quite working. But guys, I, I hate to say it, but the goal of this whole thing is not to be entertained. Just because I might be being beamed onto your TV screen right now, the goal is not entertainment. If you want entertainment, switch me off, put Netflix on, have a great time. The goal, rather, is to be addressed by the author as his characters, to be addressed by the words of the author of life, and then to go out and obey him in his story. I'll finish with this. In his final story in the Sermon on the Mount, his final bit of teaching, he tells Jesus this uh, story of the builder who builds his house upon a rock and of another builder who builds his house upon the sand. And uh, when the storm comes, one house stands strong and endures and thrives and the other house withers away, is crushed and is forgotten. Now, have you ever noticed what the difference between in his analogy, the rock and the sand is? I have always assumed that the difference is those people who are into Jesus and stuff and those people who aren't into Jesus and stuff. I've always assumed that's the big point, but it doesn't say that. We'll get to this in a few months time, but Jesus says that the wise person who builds his house on the rock is anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it. And the fool, in verse 26, is anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it. Do you notice that both people, the rock guy and the sand guy, both of them hear the teaching? Here's a challenging sentence. If you want to be kept from living the sort of life that for all the effort you're expending building it just wilts and washes away and counts for nothing in the end, then hearing lots of Jesus' words is not enough. We must obey them. We must live it. Or as Eugene Peterson says in his book on understanding the Bible, the most important question we ask of a text is not what does this mean, but what can I obey? 
A simple act of obedience will open up our lives to this text far more quickly than any number of Bible studies and dictionaries. Are you willing to listen like that? I need to just tell you this. The world right now does not need Christians who hear the words of Jesus for entertainment. The world right now, your friends, your family, your street, needs followers of Jesus, weak, yes, (laughs) unimpressive, yes, with struggles of their own, yes, but who hear the rabbi, the new Moses, the author, and don't nod along for entertainment, but obey him in his world. I want to encourage you across the city, would you be that? In all the ways that your church are connecting you and looking after each other and chatting and all of that, would you focus on, hey, what are we doing to obey the words of Jesus in this season? I want to encourage you that even though you have your struggles, your needs, your pressures. I want to urge you, hear the call of Jesus. And as you interact with your neighbours, your loved ones, obey him, live for their good, lift them up, stoop and serve them. Do what Jesus calls us to do. Is it challenging? Yes. But he promises us in that story that even when the storm comes, if you're obedient to him, your life will not wilt, but your life will stand. That is a promise many of us need to know right now. Will you listen to him in obedience?